Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Chris, the story we're starting off with this morning is yet another fascinating bit of research that has been done into gene therapy that seems like it may be able to uh, help us understand better and hopefully treat one day uh, a life-threatening inherited skin disease. This is a really remarkable piece of work. It's published in the journal Nature this week. It's by doctors in Germany and a team also in, in other European countries. The first author on the paper, if anyone wants to look it up, is Tobias Hirsch at Ruhr University. And the story they tell is of a seven-year-old boy who was admitted to hospital suffering with a lifelong inherited condition, which is called junctional epidermolysis bullosa. In individuals who have this, it's caused by having a defect in a handful of genes which code for these anchors which glue the outer layer of your skin, the epidermis, onto the deeper layers of your skin. This is called the dermis. And if these anchor molecules don't work properly, then even very trivial abrasions or damage to the skin causes catastrophic injury and the top layers just slide off and it leads horrible scar leaves horrible scars and ulcers that don't heal properly they get infections and that kind of thing when this seven-year-old boy who had this condition was admitted to hospital he'd lost almost 60 percent of the skin from his body and when doctors finally resorted to this extremely daring manoeuvre that they performed, he'd lost 80% of the skin on his body. And it was because of that exceptional circumstance that they got permission to do what they did. And in the event, they've made a huge medical breakthrough and, and almost certainly saved this individual's life. So what they did was to find one patch of skin left on his body that wasn't injured, which was a small patch of skin in his groin and on his left thigh. They took a small biopsy or sample from that skin and they extracted from it cells called keratinocytes. These are stem cells which make the upper layers of the skin. They knew what the genetic problem was in this boy. He had a defect in a gene called LAMB3, which codes for an anchor protein called laminin-5. So they used a modified harmless virus into which they put a healthy working copy of this LAMB3 gene. They infected these stem cells with this virus, which then inserted into the DNA of those cells a working copy of this gene. And they then grew from those stem cells new skin in big sheets in the dish and then transplanted those sheets of skin onto his body like a patchwork quilt. And it took a couple of months to finish this procedure, but overall they had grown nearly a square metre of new skin. And in fact, they've replaced almost all of this boy's original skin. And the amazing thing presented in Nature this week is that this was two years ago. He's now at school, he's playing football... He's healthy, he doesn't need any medication, and if he damages his skin and cuts himself, it just heals up like anybody else. So a remarkable wow. piece of work. Absolutely fascinating. Wendy, you're our first caller this week. What is your question for Chris? Hi, good morning. Yes, um, I went to have my ID done and my passport renewed. I still don't have fingerprints. Can you please tell me why? 
I don't understand what okay. you mean by you don't have fingerprints. Do you mean, do you mean the passport agency are being tardy? Or yes, do you mean... And, uh, you, on the passport and the, the banking and everywhere, wherever I go, I, when I take my fingerprints, they don't appear. Oh, dear. Have, have you have got none. visible... If you look at the pads of your fingers, do you have visible mm-hmm. ridge, mm-hmm. ridges and folds? Um... Sort of. Yeah. Some, some places are just smooth. Yeah, I mean, it, what do you do for a living, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I, I used to uh, be um, a legal uh, um, secretary, but I've been at home uh, for a while. OK. The reason for asking is that people that classically this happens to are people who do a lot of manual work. Don't You don't sound like a bricklayer to me, Wendy, but, I, you know, you have to ask in this <laughs> day and age, don't you? Um, <laughs> I do my own housework, you see this. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but that, that, that should not be the reason, should it? Because um, when you do a lot of manual work, we were just talking about skin, there's, there's a, a powerful response in skin that when you rub on your skin, you build up new skin to replace the skin you're losing. And so people who do a lot of manual work can get quite thick skin on the surfaces that are being abraded. And this can obscure fingerprints from time to time or make fingers much thicker. But I don't think you fit into that category. All I can say is that you, you probably have an indistinct fingerprint, which the machine is struggling to capture and this is all all done by machines it's not done by human eye and uh, it might well be you have to say to them look i, I i'm clearly defeating mm. your machine it's not taking clear <laughs> enough pictures can we can we do this again or perhaps use the other hand <laughs> yes we've just lost uh, the shame must be very disconcerting roger in newlands good morning to you good morning uh went to a party this week and had some helium balloons in the car and what I notice is when you go around the corner, the bodies of the people in the car move to the one way, but the balloons move in the opposite direction. That's right. Oh, yes. Yes. Why? <laughs> well, well, Roger, you, you've actually made a really important observation. And um, the, the actual answer is quite simple when you think about it, which is helium balloons float. Agree? Yeah. Yeah. The reason they float is because they are less dense. In other words, the gas inside them is pushing out of the way air that weighs more than the helium plus the balloon does, which is why the balloon is floating. Now, given that the air is therefore more dense than the helium, when you, say, let's say you pull away from a standstill in your car, if you had a helium balloon in the back of the car, it would end up in the front of the car. And the reason is that the air has inertia. As you pull away, the heavier air sloshes towards the back of the car. The helium is still floating on the air, so therefore it's pushed to the front of the car because the denser air is behind it. It's exactly the same when you go around a corner. The heavier air sloshes towards the other side of the car because you're leaving the air behind a bit as you turn. The helium is floating on the air, so it floats to the side of the car where there's less air or less dense air, and that's why you see the helium balloon doing the opposite of what the people do. Yeah, I was wondering why the helium balloons kept coming to the front. I thought they wanted to drive with me. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. And that's why they do it. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. Thanks so much. Zico Smith wants to know on Twitter from you, Chris, why his water pond seems to be evaporating so quickly. I don't know if that's quicker than usual or not. I I assume so. Uh, The rest of his tweet says, we refill it with almost 50 liters every Monday. I'm not sure if that's enough information to answer the question, but what determines how quickly evaporation happens? Well, there's a number of factors. One is the overall ambient temperature. So if you're having hot spells of weather, which of course 
course, it's, it's coming towards summertime. Yes, you are. So more, the more energy there is in the water, the more likely the water is uh, to have enough energy more of the time to evaporate. So that's a consideration. The obvious one is there is a leak somewhere, which is if you've got water being lost from somewhere, pipe work, filter work, through through the liner itself, that will pose a problem. And the third thing is if you've got water features, because things like waterfalls and fountains are surfaces which can absorb energy from the sun and get warm and then when the water trickles over them it gives extra heat to the water and encourages the water to evaporate and obviously if you're spraying the water up into the air with a little fountain or something then that also is going to give more energy from the air into the water and encourage evaporation so all of these factors are probably coming into play as well as how much direct sunlight the surface of the pond sees so all of those things to consider but the number one thing if something has changed all of a sudden in other words normally you know how much you have to top it up by and suddenly it's changed and you're having to top it up a lot more something must be causing that to have abruptly caused that to change and if you haven't added any water features or suddenly taken sunshade away or something there must be a leak i would go looking for that first Okay, we've got we've got help for you today, Chris, to answer the fingerprint question. Pat in Sunninghill. Yes, hello. Um, I live in a retirement place, and we they installed a fingerprint access thing for us, but it actually doesn't work for elderly people. Well, it does for some, but when you reach a certain age, you've worn all your fingerprints off. So I have a driver's license with a. Um, no print, no fingerprint stamp on on it because I haven't got a fingerprint. Oh wow! Ah, um, and I would say it's, <laughs> it's probably age related. No, no, I agree with you, and and actually, it's a very good point. Um, yes, because of course, as you do age, your skin thins, and you lose the collagen and the elastic elastin tissue in the skin, and this will mean that it is harder for the skin to maintain the same fingerprint profile. So that's a very good point. I didn't think of that. Thank you very much. I think that's almost certainly going to be part of the answer. Thank you, Pat. In Ronfontein, Samuel, welcome to the show. What is your question? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks, um, Sam. Go I, ahead. I, 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 I just wanted to find out what is the really negative impact of drinking excessive of energy drinks. Um, what does it do in your body? Because um, I once drank excessive energy drink. I was traveling for a long distance. I think it was about 900 kilometers. But then I was feeling very strange when I got to the place at my destination. So what did, How much did you drink, it. Samuel, during that trip? Or what did you drink? Uh, it was a Red Bull, if I may mention. The, the, the energy drink Red Bull. And how many did you have? I think I had four of them. The, 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 the longer ones, the bigger ones. Okay. <laughs> Chris? Uh, hello, Samuel. Uh, I think there's a range of factors here. One is that anybody who's stuck behind the wheel of a car for 900 kilometres, that's quite a long way. They're going to feel tired anyway. Um, so concentration and mental fatigue probably played a part here. Number two, energy drinks. They're full of sugar and they're also full of caffeine and other sometimes other stimulants as well. But caffeine's the big one. Um, what these chemicals do, the caffeine stops your body from breaking down the signals that are produced by adrenaline. So they basically potentiate or increase the, the action of adrenaline in your body, and that's why they have this enlivening effect. And there is a window which, if you have an increase within that window of a certain amount, you feel okay and a bit more motivated. If you go beyond that threshold, 
you begin to get quite serious side effects. And these can include tremors, they can include anxiety, they can include actually paradoxically in some people feeling a bit tired and sleepy because you become so aroused by the adrenaline you then feel absolutely exhausted. Also the sugar hit that you get from some of these energy drinks. When you drink sugar, it's very rapidly absorbed by the small intestine. It goes straight up to your liver. Your liver thinks that you have got this enormous sugar burden coming and starts to take steps to remove the sugar the same thing happens in the pancreas, which squirts out lots and lots of insulin into the bloodstream. Insulin is the sugar-lowering hormone. And then when all your organs see this, this level of insulin, they suck up sugar like a giant vacuum cleaner, and the blood sugar can actually plummet afterwards. And as a result, you feel paradoxically more tired through having had some of these energy drinks. So the answer is moderation and hydration. So um, don't, don't just drink energy drinks to stay, to stay hydrated. Drink water. There's nothing wrong with water. It's perfect We've, we've evolved using water for millions of years. We, we didn't need the help of these energy drinks to get through the day when we were striving for evolution millions of years ago. We don't need them now. Absolutely. In fact, let me take a swig. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef. Take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist that is the sound of water, not Red Bull being poured here in the studio. Let's go back to the lines. Peter, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, Chris, I have uh, one question. The moon that we have going around Earth is always facing us. Now, we've got over 100 moons in the solar system. Is this common? Are there other moons facing us as well? Hi, Peter. The reason that our moon happens to face us is that the moon takes about the same amount of time to go round the Earth as it does to turn itself. So as a result, it's completely matching its turn with its orbit. And as a result, the same face is always projected towards us. A slightly unusual circumstance, but not, not um, impossible. So uh, I don't know about the other moons in the solar system. There are a lot. We just discovered seven more around Saturn. I don't know if they're locked in the same way. I doubt it. I think we're quite fortunate with our moon to, to always be able to see the same face. Good job. It's a nice one, isn't it? Um, whether it applies elsewhere in the solar system, I don't know. Maybe other people could tell me if, if other moons have been studied which are similarly locked in this way. I, I think there probably will be, but I don't know specifics. So I'm not going not gonna to speculate unless someone can tell me. Okay, good question. Thanks, Peter. Mark from our SMS line asked this question. What makes a child, or I suppose a person, um, left-handed as opposed to right-handed? The answer is we don't know, but obviously evolution and the body goes to considerable lengths to preserve this because 90% of humans are right-handed. Also, if we look back in history, this is not a new phenomenon. A paper was published about 15, 20 years ago by scientists in France looking at cave paintings they were studying how people had painted their hands on the walls of caves using a blowpipe. What they would do is to hold the blowpipe in one hand, use their opposite hand as a template, and then blow the paint 
onto their hand to create the outline of the hand on the cave wall. Now, when the Montpellier scientists repeated this with schoolchildren, with a ratio of 90% right-handers, 10% left-handers, they found the same ratio of right and left hands on the wall of the cave as these cave paintings, on, on, the, on the classroom wall as on the cave paintings, arguing that the same ratio of right-handedness and left-handedness probably existed more than 30, 40, 50,000 years ago in our ancestors. Why this should happen, we don't know. It's not exclusive to humans in the sense that there are members of the animal world that do seem to show a preference. Kangaroos prefer to use one particular paw over the other when doing certain things. Some birds might also use one particular foot or claw to capture certain things. There's a a friend of mine looking at ospreys in Australia to try and work that one out. We don't know exactly why it happens, but scientists speculate it has something to do with what we call hemispheric specialisation and lateralization. If you look in the brain, the area of our brain that codes language and is our dominant hemisphere in the vast majority of the population is the left hemisphere. You have at the towards the front at the bottom on the right on the left-hand side of your brain is a language center and that's true in in 90% of the population give or take. So the brain already puts one particular hemisphere in charge, it puts language in that hemisphere and that's the same hemisphere that controls your dominant hand. Your left brain controls your right hand. So we think it's got something to do with the way the brain specialises and is asymmetrical. But scientists are not sure exactly how it happens, how the body divides itself into left and right and tells left and right when it's developing or why it's chosen to give uh, right-hand dominance to 90% of the population. We don't know. Donovan, good morning. I don't ever know you there. I'm here. Um, basically, my question is, why do I sneeze when I look at the sun? Hi, Donovan. The answer to this, you have the photic sneeze reflex. This is a, affects about 20% of, of people, one in five. Um, scientists used to think that it was because when you looked at bright lights that some tears would form, they would trickle down into your nose. The tears would irritate the inner surface of your nose and trigger a sneeze. But when they looked at the latency, how long it takes for that effect to happen, it's too quick for the tear explanation. Instead, what scientists think is happening is that the signals that go into your eye and make your pupil shrink when you look at a bright light source, this is called the pupiloconstriction reaction or pupil reaction, those signals go into the brain and the brain stem where they're decoded next door to the area where you're controlling what the pupil is doing is an area that controls your respiratory system and decodes sensations from the nose and face and processes things like sneeze reflexes. So scientists have speculated that in about one person in five, there is a spillover of that nerve activity from the circuits that are controlling how big your pupil should be and that reaction to light into the sneezing nerve centres. And it therefore facilitates, it doesn't always cause, but it can facilitate a sneeze under bright light conditions. Um, People have looked at this in the military because the US Army and military were were worried about having pilots flying a thousand miles an hour in a jet and then flying towards the sun and then suddenly experiencing a sneezing fit, which is not what you want if you're doing, you know, 1500 kilometers an hour, thousand miles an hour, straight towards the sun. Nasty things could happen. So they were very interested in studying this and that's how some more of this uh, understanding came to light. Wow, I didn't even know there, there was such a thing as sneezing when looking at the sun. Fascinating. Roger and Howard Bay, good morning to you. What is your question for Chris? 
Morning, Eusebius and Chris. Nice to talk to you both. My question is, if we one day have spaceships that can travel at light speed and we inadvertently trap a fly inside the cabin of the spaceship and it's buzzing around, won't it be traveling at faster than light speed? <laughs> no, Roger. And this is the whole thing about relativity. Um, I, I grant you that, say I was cycling along on my bicycle and I grabbed a pea shooter and I shot you, then the pea that hits you would be the speed of the pea leaving the pea shooter plus the speed of my bicycle. This is not the same with light. If a car was driving along in space and it was doing a, a, the speed of light and it turned on its headlights, relative to the car, the light leaving the car would go at the speed of light. Relative to an external observer, that would not happen. Light would run at the speed of light. And in fact, to compensate for the fact that there is no breaking the speed limit, time has to change. And that's why you get this effect of time dilatation. Um, If I leave Earth and I head off on a spacecraft travelling at the speed of light, you stay here on Earth and I come back, um, relative to me, you've aged more when I come back. I'm younger than you, even though exactly the same amount of time for both of us has passed. Actually, time for you has passed more than time has passed for me. Okay, thank you, Roger. Adeline, you've been holding on. Let's try and squeeze you in before we run out of time. Go straight ahead, the Naked Scientist listening. It seems like we've lost Adeline there. Tom, good morning. Morning, how are you doing? You're talking about left-handedness. Yes, Tom, what's your question? Um, I've heard that uh, left-handed people, if they have a stroke, normally people that have a stroke use their speech, but they say... Well, I've heard that if left-handed people have a stroke, they don't use their speech. That sounds very odd. Chris, have you heard anything like that? Hello, Tom. Um, Your point is made and founded on good principles and sound principles because I said that 90% of the time people are right-handed and that the language centre is in the dominant part of the brain, which in a right-hander is on the left side of the brain. Now, in a left-hander, their dominant hemisphere is quite often the left side of the brain, bizarrely, where language is, but certainly not exclusively. And some of the time, language is in the opposite hemisphere. And if that person were to have a stroke affecting what would traditionally in a right-hander be the language centre, in this individual who's got the language on the other side of the brain, they would not be affected in the same way. But it, isn't, it, it obviously is less common for that to happen because there is this very strong bias towards the left hemisphere being dominant, even in the left-hander, and language being in that dominant hemisphere. But you're absolutely right. There is the possibility of that happening. Barris in Cape Town, let's squeeze in your question. It's a fascinating one. Ask Chris. Good morning, Chris. Just a question. If a woman had a, a heart transplant from a male, would she have an advantage? And conversely, for the male, would he have a disadvantage if he had a female heart installed? Well, they, they might have a disadvantage, but not for the reason you're thinking. When we do transplantation surgery, you have to match the organ to the body demands of the recipient. If you were to put a little old lady's heart into a strapping great rugby player, it wouldn't do very well. The heart would not keep up with the demands. Similarly, if you took the heart of a, of an, a rugby player and tried to put this into a little old lady, the space it's got to go into would struggle to accommodate it. So when people are doing transplants and they're sorting people out for transplants, they're not just matching genetically. Can we get the closest chemical and genetic match to make sure the immune system accepts this organ? They're also asking from a functional and physiological size perspective um, with, with those constraints in mind, will this fit? So you always try and match not just the genetics, you also match the scale and size of the organ and the 
individual to make sure you get the best fit possible. Great stuff. Have a good week ahead, Chris. We'll do it again next week. Thank um, you so much I'm for your generosity. Already looking forward to it. Thanks, Eusebia. See you soon. Bye-bye, everyone. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.